This is an ABC podcast. In 1983, 15-year-old Rebecca McCabe took her first trip overseas in a very special tracksuit. Rebecca was the Australian women's 800-metre freestyle champion and she had her sights on the Olympic squad, who were already in heavy training for the Los Angeles Olympics. But just as she was on the cusp of Olympic greatness in the pool, something happened which changed everything. It set Rebecca on a different course, one she followed for more than two decades. Until just last year, when she made another big, scary, exciting, life-altering decision. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Sarah. Rebecca, how old were you when your talent as a swimmer was first spotted? Well, Sarah, it's a story my mother tells me. I was swimming in the mucking around in Guthrie's pool in Woolaware and the coach at the time said, I was just swimming at the back of the lane, at the back of the pool, the coach said, who owns this little one? (laughs) And mum said, I do. And he said to mum, she is going to be a very good swimmer. And he said to me, how old are you? And I put up three fingers. So I was three. I wonder what he saw. What would a coach have been able to tell about a little kid who, you know, couldn't even speak properly yet? I think with a swimmer, broad shoulders and no hips, probably. (laughs) (laughs) I I suppose he saw something in my stroke at the time or flotation, but I was just mucking around at the back of the pool because most of my family, my, my sister and my brother, elder sister and older brother, they swam. So... It was sort of in the family. We grew up near the water, so we all swam. And we were all quite talented, really, at swimming. I wasn't the only one, but... Uh, did you always love the water, Rebecca, love being in the water? I did, always. Always loved it. Just loved being in it. It's, um, it gave you that sense of freedom. I also loved, later on in my years, just the contemplative side, I think, of just putting your head in the water and going up a black line nonstop. It seems <laughs> a bit weird, but... I appreciated that because life gets pretty busy and just have those times where you're just roaming up and down a black line. It, I I think I like that aspect of it in some ways. You say you were part of a sporty family and that you had brothers and sisters who were into swimming and, and training too. What time did you need to get going of a morning if you all had training to get to? Very early. <laughs> the alarm went at about 4.15am. So your poor parents. I know, I know, Sarah. My mum and dad had five children under the age of nine, <laughs> and we were all pretty talented in different ways. So yeah, my poor parents. They used to have to drive us to training, or dad drove us to training in the morning, and mum drove us and picked us up in the afternoon. What was that car ride like with your dad in the morning? It wasn't good, Sarah. There was nothing good about it, really. It was very <laughs> early in the morning. <laughs> And we got in the car and Dad was a smoker at the time, so Dad would light up a cigarette in the morning, 4.15am or 4.30am, and we'd be sitting in the car and we'd have our towel over our nose so that the fumes didn't get in our nostrils. But as Mum said later on, she said, none of you have actually died of passive smoking, so swimming must have been good to you for your lungs, so it was able to withstand that brunt at 4.15am in the morning. Once he dropped you off, would he stay there and watch you train or what would he do? 
No, he didn't. So we we would just plow up and down the lane and um, he would actually drive and get a coffee, sit in the car with a newspaper and have a cigarette. <laughs> so as we were doing all the hard yards, Dad was sitting in the car having a cigarette, reading the paper and having a coffee. But I have to say that my father led a busy life. He had, as I said, five children under nine as well, and he ran a legal practice. And I think it was just his time out. And I was really grateful for that, Sarah, because I didn't have the pressure that I saw other parents apply to their kids as they were training. Like some of the parents would be sitting by the poolside in that early hour of the morning and in the afternoon and and watching every lap and timing every lap. So I was actually grateful that Dad just dropped me off and then went and got a cappuccino and had a cigarette and read the paper and then I'd come out after two hours and then we'd drive back. (laughs) How old were you when you started training more seriously? Probably about eight, seven or eight, when I started to think that um, the coaches around me started to think that I had some talent So I started to train probably once a day. And then as I got to 13 and 14, 15, it was twice a day, five hours a day, really. Five hours a day, every day of the week? I only trained once on Saturday. We had Sunday off. So I was a distance swimmer. So I was an 800 metre swimmer. And I was, it was in the 80s when sort of sports psychology wasn't big or sports science wasn't big. So for a distance swimmer, all you sort of was required of you is to train hard, which I did, and sort of have the courage to sort of (laughs) get in there and do it. I mean, the coaches at the time, like the Laurie Lawrences, the John Rogers at the time, they were good technicians. They were very good technicians in terms of your stroke. But it was all, they were also hard, you know, you had to train hard. You know, you had the, the physique and you had the talent. That training hard, that working hard, did that come fairly naturally to you? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I just saw that I had a, a talent and I think what happens is you, you're in the flow. You, you make state championships and then you win that and then the coach says, you know, if you do more laps or you do more training sessions, you will make Australian championships and then you could win the Australian Open and you just sort of get into that flow. And I think also, Sarah, I was just looking back the other day and thinking there is a voice of success that says inside you, that you're sort of not good enough and that you need to train harder. And that might sound hard, and it probably is, but I think it was part of my success. So I just had a voice that's saying, you know, more. You could do more. You can, you, you, and it may have flipped at times over to you're not good enough. You need to do more. And I think that's what I had to battle with a bit later in life. But also that, I mean, when you're, when you're competing at that level and at your school, you know, you're a sports captain, you know, the boys want to pick you in the soccer team and they want, to be, you want to be the, they want you to be the first pick, you know. So you get a lot of identity and kudos out of being a good sports person in, in Australian culture, I suppose. What was that feeling like when you managed to touch the end of the, the pool first? Oh, it's the best feeling yeah, I mean, anyone that does any sport would know what winning feels like. There's not much that you don't enjoy about winning. I think part of what sport does, any sport really, at any level, 
is that it teaches you how to deal with the failure as well. Like you, you, you're never going to win all the time, no matter how good you are at any sport. So at a young age, I had to navigate winning, which was pretty easy, <laughs> and then navigate losing. Like the feelings of losing are not comfortable feelings. So at a young age, I had to navigate those feelings and actually I think that's held me in good stead really at later in life. You were growing up in a Catholic family. Did God play a part in how you you handled when you didn't win or how you felt about competing at all? Yeah, God came into it, Sarah, in a very deep and meaningful way. So when I was a little one, maybe seven, eight, nine, I'd be behind the blocks in the marshalling area and I'd pray like mad to God, you know, God, please, please, now I want to make this Australian team or state team or I want to win this race. And if I touched the wall first at the end of the race, God existed. And if I came second, God didn't exist, unfortunately. <laughs> so It's a very um, straightforward theology, Rebecca. Yeah, I admire that. <laughs> it's very straightforward and it's the God that fixes things. So it's very straightforward. If God fixes it and enables me to win, God exists. And if God doesn't, then God doesn't exist. So You talked about the, the kind of uh, almost contemplative nature of being able to just go up and down that black line. Was that true for you even back there at eight or nine or ten? Like what did you used to think about when you'd swim lap after lap in those many hours of training? I think it was, Sarah. I think I've always had that dimension to me. Um, I've always led a very active life, but I think that dimension of me was always there, that contemplative side. I actually enjoyed that space that that gave me. Um, occasionally I'd veer off. I don't know what I was thinking of. Occasionally <laughs> I'd veer off to my maths problems of the day and try to solve them from school. But I think I've always had a sense, Sarah, that um, that there's something there that's a presence with me that's always there. I mean, I may name it God. I may name that presence something different as I've grown older. But it's always been there as a as a comfort to me. And later in life, as things got a bit tougher. I had to draw on it and a sense that life doesn't stop with me or life doesn't stop with you. And I think I touched into that in a, at a very early age. And I think that swimming up and down that black line um, just enhanced that, I think, the time. What happened with your, your swimming, Rebecca, when you were 15? Well, in, in Tasmania, I won the 1983 Australian Open 800 metre swimming championship. So that was the first big championship that I won. And I went under the qualifying time for the Olympic Games. So um, if you were first and second and you went under the qualifying time for the Olympic Games, which was the top 10 in the world, you were ordered automatically selected onto the pre-Olympic team. So I was an automatic selection onto the pre-Olympic team. Wow. Actually, like, yeah, it was pretty. <laughs> That's huge. It was big. You went on an, an overseas trip as part of that, that pre-Olympic team. Tell me about that. Where did you go? What was that trip about? Well, we went to, we got our gear, you know, the gear. I can still remember it, getting the Australian tracksuit and the T-shirt and and we all gathered at Sydney Airport and we had a couple of training camps. One was in Stanford University and one was in the University of Southern California. And we actually competed at the pool 
where the um, LA Olympics was to be held in, in Los Angeles. So it was very exciting. I was away for, I think I was away for about four to six weeks. Did, did you miss home? Oh, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, every time I rang mum or mum rang me, I'd sort of shed a tear. So, But then when I got off the phone, it was fine. The camp was good. It was very supportive. We had supportive managers. The coaches were tough in that, those days, but we it was, a, it was a good time with my mates and we were all there. And um, But, yeah, the phone call back to home wasn't a good thing, but um, I quickly got over it when I hung <laughs> <laughs> like any good teenager. Yeah, so, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, in that atmosphere where you're training with the intention of joining the Olympic team for this upcoming Olympics and in that era, I guess like still now, but in that era where, you know, our swimmers were just these national champions, can you even give a sense of what a big deal it was for you to be going to the Olympics? I mean, did this just completely dominate everything else in in your life back then this this prospect well it was it was the whole my whole life really from about seven onwards to 15 16 was all about making this olympic team so everything i did everything i ate all the people i was with i was with my squad many more hours in the day than i was with my family so it was all geared to to this to this 1984 olympic championship and it was the my sole purpose really um it was like what got me up each day were you also having to fit school work in around this training i was yeah my father told me very early on that i probably wouldn't be good enough to be world champion so i needed to put my head down at school as well <laughs> it was very practical man my dad so I did, yeah. I was like so, so I was swimming in the morning, going to school, training in the afternoon, coming back, eating, going to bed, doing a bit of homework. So as this Olympic goal was getting closer and closer, what happened? Well, what really happened is that I probably overtrained, Sarah. I, I was still doing my year twelve at school, year eleven, year twelve. And in the school holidays, which was the January, February, uh, my coaches at the time thought that training sort of three times a day might help my prospects. So I trained three times a day. And I, I really think basically I overloaded the tendon. It was too much for a, a person of that age. But as I said, sports science wasn't big in that day. It was like, or sports psychology. And so I think I overtrained. So I tore my supraspinatus tendon. Could, really. you, could you feel it when that happened like was that a sudden moment or was it a, a progressive injury no I could hear it sort of snap it was a full tear so I could hear it snap when I was swimming and I really couldn't do much after that yeah I was swimming freestyle and I remember turning we were doing a set uh it was 10 400s so 10 times 400 meters and I think it was the eighth set of that uh, that and so when I turned at the 200-metre mark, I just could feel, well, I could hear snap. I heard the snap and then I couldn't really raise my arm over my shoulder. It's very difficult to do that. Was almost. it agonisingly painful? It was, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was, it was, it was probably the greatest pain I've ever felt. Um, but also the pain was also about 
knowing that that had ruined my chances of of getting on the team. I, I knew then that um, I wouldn't make it because I knew the injury was bad and even though I had a lot of treatment for it, I went down to the Institute of Sport in Canberra. I had magnets strapped to my shoulder. I had injections. Nothing really worked. It was really rest was needed and, and nothing worked for that level to get back to that level of going to, the, you know, being able to compete in the Olympic Games. So it was devastating, yeah. That yeah. moment where you swim over to the edge and pull yourself out must have been a terrible moment for you. And then I imagine... You'd see that on the faces of your coaches looking at you. And I see that now with other sports people. I never forget that. Like when I'm watching TV and other sports like football, soccer, netball, whenever I see that, it just takes me back to when it happened to me. It's interesting. It's always a, like a visceral experience that, that, that dampens but never really goes away. Yeah. How did your coaches respond? I mean, I, I'm sure they were torn between wanting to look after you but also really wanting you to be able to get back in the pool and still somehow make the Olympics. How did they handle it? I think they were comforting but the whole goal was to get me back to <laughs> to ploughing up that pool again. So, you know, as I said, I had lots of treatment on it but some treatments enabled me to get in and do a few laps even from the beginning of that injury, I knew I knew then that I was never going to get back in, in time to get on the Olympic team because the Olympic qualifying time, you had to go to a qualifying meet just before the Olympics to see if you were at the standards still. And I knew that in a couple of months there was no way I was going to get back. But I'd have there was a lot of hope around, I suppose, you know, hope that I would be able to get back in and do it and be at the standard I was. But, like, I was ranked ninth in the world so at the time, so it's a fairly high standard, and I knew I wouldn't be able to get back there. Could you still watch the LA Olympics on TV, or was that just too awful? That's an interesting question. I could, yeah. I, I, I really wanted to watch my teammates and how they went. So it was hard, but I did watch it. Yeah, I, the hardest thing was waving them off at the airport, um, just to say goodbye, and I knew that I wouldn't be a part of it and a part of what that was. But I did watch it because there were people on that team that were really good friends of mine. So I really wanted to watch how they went. And yeah, it was tough, but I did. Could yeah. you get back into training at all, Rebecca? Did your shoulder heal enough for, for you to make it back into the pool in a competitive way? I did rest it for about six months and then it started to come good. So in 1985, I actually got myself back in the water and got training and I was in the Australian team again. This was the year after the Olympics. And I won the Australian Games Championship in Melbourne. We, uh, I tied actually with an Italian girl. Um, I, knew that, I know the time, 417.52. <laughs> <laughs> And I got back and was enjoying it again. But then very soon after that championship, I mean, the tendon went again. So I knew that I didn't have a long future in swimming. And I retired at about 18. Gosh, it's such a telling thing about sports, isn't it, that you can have had a career and retire at 18 when, you yes. know, <laughs> other <laughs> teenagers are still thinking about getting their driver's licence or something. <laughs> you got a, a cheque in the mail 
one day to do with your swimming. Tell me that story. Yes, I got a cheque in the post from the New South Wales government and it was a cheque for $1,500 because I was ranked in the top 10 in the world. I was ranked number nine. So that was the only money I received (laughs) from anywhere for my career in the 80s. And I I thought it was terrific. I was able to buy my first FJ Holden with the gears (laughs) on the side with it. So I was delighted. (laughs) I think Dad was really happy because I was able to drive myself to training eventually in that FJ Holden at 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. So you had your FJ Holden, but your, your swimming career as you'd hoped for it to be was over. Did you stop going to the pool completely? Like, did you just step away from that whole life? I did. Yeah, I did. I actually hit a bit of a, well, not a bit of a downtime. I was 17, 18, and for most of my formative years, the one thing that gave me purpose, apart from other, I mean, I had good family and friends around me, but the one thing that got me up each day was swimming and achieving in swimming. So when I retired, there was a real gap in my life. I think it was, looking back on it, I think it was a real gap of meaning. And um, I couldn't go near a pool for, for quite a long while, for probably about six or seven years. It was just that void that Everything was geared towards achieving and, and, and making your goals. And when you can't, then I had to look at inside and think, well, what's life about? Is life more than winning gold medals? It has to be because I can't do that anymore. Is life more than swimming up and down a black lane? It has to be because I can't do that anymore. So it was the start of a real search for me. Tell me about your grandma, Rebecca, and the kind of conversations you'd have with her at, at this point in your life? Well, my grandmother was really significant to me. She was around our family a lot. She would come over and do the ironing for mum. and So she was around a lot. And I saw her as being such a powerful presence in my life. And it was the little things that she did. She'd say, like, let's come and have a cup of coffee. Let's go for a walk. I used to go down the wharf with her and just, you know, put out a line with a little bit of bread on it with no hope of catching anything. But we sat there on the wharf for hours together. And I sometimes think, Sarah, it was some of the, what do you call sayings that she said that helped me. So she used to say things like, Rebecca, you won't realise it now, but everything is a seven-day wonder. So that meant that this is really hard to grapple with now. But later on in life, it won't be so hard or, you know, saying like everything is, she used to say everything is froth and bubble, but two things stand like stone, comfort or kindness in another's troubles and courage in your own. And I just held on to, and plus the fact that she had, and I was thinking later, why did I gravitate to her wisdom And why was it so central to me at that age? And I think because Sarah, she faced adversity in her own life and she knew what to do with me. She knew how to be, she knew she couldn't take it away, but she knew how to comfort me and love me in that and give me a path out of it. That was really, really helpful. Yeah, and she, um, you know, she grew up in Bondi when she was married to a 
her husband worked on the wharves, so income wasn't reliable. And every time she mentions Peter's name, she says, God rest his soul. But income wasn't reliable. So she had two young children. So what she did is she went out to the Australian hotel when they went to bed and worked a three-hour shift as a waitress, like from 9 o'clock till 12 o'clock, three days, three nights a week, so that she could have reliable income to pay the rent. And she didn't tell me those stories, oh, poor me, you know, just they were stories that she used to just say amongst other stories. And I just realised that at that time she was so critical in, in me being able to move through that period in my life. Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So there you were in your early 20s thinking, what am I going to do? Where, where will I find meaning in my life? Where did you start to lean towards? Well, I got more involved in my local church community and we had a group of people there that were quite interesting people. They were professional people and they were interested in the same questions I was asking, like what's the meaning of this, what's the purpose, is there a God, does faith exclude doubt, you know, those sort of questions. So we gathered as part of um, the parish at the time, the the local Catholic parish. There was a really good priest at the time that really gave us um, a sense of exploring these questions. And I realised that these were the questions that I wanted to explore and we just had fun together. And that led to me becoming more involved in my faith or my faith becoming more important to me. And... I realised that I wanted to do something radical with my life and I realised that I wanted to give my life for something. I'd grown up in a Catholic family that was all about faith in action, what you did for others and the contribution you made to the community. So I don't know whether I joined, left one squad and joined the other, Sarah, but I ended up joining the Sisters of Mercy Parramatta. <laughs> a little bit of a different squad. <laughs> Less swimsuits, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> less goggles and less swimsuits. Did this decision take your parents by surprise, the decision to join the Sisters of Mercy? Well, I remember going into... Uh, I tell dad he was getting dressed to go to work and he used to sit on this chair to do his tie up and you know part his hair and do his hair and I said dad I've got something to tell you and he said what I I said I'm joining the sisters of mercy and he said holy shit (laughs) (laughs) and you know how my father used to do it but he couldn't engage you at the time and he had to run off for work he said Rebecca can we talk about this when I get home from work (laughs) Later on, Sarah, when that night when mum and dad were around, they just said to me, you know, we've found happiness in marriage, but we've got to let you go and do what you need, think you need to do to happiness is what it's about and we need to give you the 
scope to explore that. So I was really grateful for that. They were always supportive of whatever I did and I was really lucky there. As they'd said to you, they'd found meaning through marriage. What about you? I mean, did that prey on your mind, that that reality that in, in saying yes to the convent, you were in effect saying no to marriage or, or an intimate relationship? Was that a hard weighing up for you to have to do back in your 20s? I don't think I'm the sort of person that weighs it up like that. So no, I don't think so. I didn't say no to what I was giving up. I just said yes to what I was taking on, if that makes sense. And what I was taking on was a clear purpose. You know, the Sisters of Mercy, you knew what they were on about. They were about making contribution to healthcare, to social services, to education. There were some great women at the time. I'm talking, you know, 30 years ago where they could have run IBM, some of them. They were, they were just great, intelligent. They'd given their life for the same thing and I wanted to join them. And it was a, it was a clear purpose, clear meaning. It had a structure. And I think, you know, I didn't think about what I was giving up. I just thought about what I was taking on. And I think that's what I've done in my life, um, just yeah. move forward. How do you go about signing up? Once you'd made that decision that you wanted to join, what was the process? You don't scan a document and send it back to the Vatican. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The process is you actually go to the congregational leader at the time, which is the Sisters of Mercy, and say that you are thinking of joining. Um, They put you through a process of novitiate, which is a year, and then three or four years after that of training. And they and you feel is it, you know, at the end of that four years, is it right for you to continue? And if if it's right, then you take your final vows as a sister of mercy. And what, ha- what happens on that day, Rebecca, when you take your vows? Well, it's it's vows of poverty, chastity, and service to the poor. Oh, sorry, Sarah, I've forgotten one. You forgot obedience, didn't you? (laughs) I think that's very telling, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't surprise me that I missed out that one, Sarah. (laughs) Obedience. So it's a big ceremony. You invite your friends and family. Friends and family were always very supportive of what I did. So they were there and the sisters were there. And it's like a big mass and a big thing. And you actually lie down on the carpet of the chapel as a sign of giving face down, like as if you were at the flags at the surf right, you know, the flags at the beach. <laughs> but it's, you lie, and you, you, it's a sign of you giving your whole self over. So you're on the floor of the chapel and you're professing to God through the Sisters of Mercy that you profess poverty, chastity, obedience, service. Um, for your life. How was your mum on that day? Well, mum couldn't stop crying, Sarah. She was next to me and she couldn't stop crying. And I think she went through about three boxes of tissues. And everyone thought that she was crying for this, what was I at the time, 25-year-old daughter that she was giving up to the church. But what she was really crying for is my father had died just a year before of bowel cancer. So she was, I mean, her tears were that she was missing having my dad there with her. I think it was a really big day for her. Mm. Yeah. 
it was not in that my my joining wasn't at the time where you joined religious life and you were never seen again. I was post-Vatican too, so I could always see my family. So it wasn't such a big wrench for family where it was before Vatican II because some, some of the nuns that joined religious life, they didn't see their families for 20, 30 years. Those vows that you talk of, of poverty and chastity and service and obedience, what did that mean for your daily life? What was day-to-day life like for you once you joined? Well, day-to-day life would start with uh, prayer in the morning and then I would go out to work as a physio. So it wasn't too different for me. I was always working on the on the edge of the institutional church. I was never in the centre of it. So I was always working on the edge with people that couldn't afford physio services. So... I, when I entered, when I took my vows, I, I had worked as a research scientist and I was asked if I'd like to retrain in terms of being more hands-on with people, I suppose. And I said, well, if I was to retrain, what I'd like to retrain in is physio because I had an experience of having a, a significant injury and I wanted to really help people with through injury and pain. And I became a pain specialist in physio. My auntie, my dad's sister, joined the Sisters of Mercy in the 1950s and there were hundreds of, of girls with her. But what was it like when you joined? How, how many other women joined with you? My profession, I was, I was alone. I was the only one that joined. There was a lady that joined six months before me and there was a lady that joined six months after me. And they're both still in there, actually. But it was... Like, I just presumed that women would join after me, but I, I was, when I left, I was the youngest in the group at 51. So it's, it seems to me that it's, um, the religious life is been remarkable in terms of setting up systems in our community. I know there was some tough sisters, but I mean, I know that and, and people's experience are sometimes that there was some really strict or cruel sisters, but I think that it's probably, if I could predict, it's probably sort of dying as a form in the in the Western world. Uh, post-war, there was a lot, as you said with your auntie, there was a lot of women joining and it was like they were young, they were idealistic, there was, a, there was a vision. And some of these women, as I said, they could have run IBM, they were actually assuming leadership positions in society before before women were, like heads of schools or heads of wards. So the, they were really trailblazers in a sense for, for women to assume leadership positions in our community. But I think it looks like the form is dying, at least in the Western world. Yeah. What kind of friendships or, or relationships did you form with other sisters in the convent while you were there? There were some very good relationships, uh, often with people, with women older than me. I looked up to these women and I became really good friends with them. I'm still really good friends with uh, a few of the women. Tell me about Rosemary, who was and is an important part of your life. Rosemary Crumlin, uh, she's now 88. Just a really interesting, uh, thought-provoking friend you know we I ring her each morning at 7am on my way to work still do have done for 16 years and we laugh and we chat and it's just a really special friendship and she's um 
She would be like me. She's probably more a searcher than a finder. And I think she, like me, has changed her image of God over the time. I, I can't help but wonder, Rebecca, of of that fact that you were this younger woman, in some cases much younger, mm. in a kind of tribe of women who were all ageing. I mean, that would have been an interesting dynamic between you not really having a peer group of your age in, in the convent, but, but all those those women being so much older than you. Definitely. I went to a lot of funerals. <laughs> Yeah, they, I grew very close to women that were older than me. I had to. Uh, there was not many people around my own age group and no one coming after me. But I read something that you look up to someone and you see in someone what's really in you, and I really like that idea that you really admire in another what's really in you. And I didn't notice the age difference, to tell you the truth, because it was all about friendship. And having the same purpose, in a sense, of wanting to make a difference and making difference to the society in a way you, you, the talents you've been given. And, you know, they're intelligent, interesting women that were in um, the group. But I think the age gap in the end may have been one of the reasons, not the sole reason, but one of the reasons why I had to think that, it was taking up too much energy belonging to the group and that, I ha that and that life was drawing me to somewhere else. What else was in that feeling, Rebecca? What else was, was starting to come up for you after, you know, more than two decades as a Sister of Mercy? I was using up too much energy trying to belong and my world was starting to shrink rather than expand and I was starting to tread water. And I'm probably not very good at treading water, Sarah. <laughs> so, um, and life was just asking something more of me. Was that a scary thing to notice in yourself? It was very scary. Yeah, it was very scary because it was all I knew for 26 years. And it took me about two and a half years to actually make this, to actually do it, to actually leave religious life. It was very scary. It was, you know, I had this thing also that you make life vows and I made life vows and, you know, there was something in me that you, you should keep your hand on the plow. But I knew that I couldn't keep doing that because something in me was sort of dying. And it was the financial insecurity too that was hard to manage. Such a practical decision as well that you had to suddenly think about money, think about accommodation. Like, did that play a, a big part in your wrestling with this? It did. Yeah, it did. It, it was actually in the two years that I was going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, 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 no, 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 yes, <laughs> leave, no. It was, it was easier to stay than leave at times even though I had this sense of I probably needed to go uh, because the thought of going just required a lot of courage. And I don't know if other women in other situations would resonate with me, but I wasn't under any violence or anything like that, Sarah. The, the, the life had been good to me for 26 years. The sisters educated me, not completely educated me. I had done a science degree before I joined, but I went out with a, you know, an ability to, to earn a disposable income. 
But for 26 years, I didn't have to worry about money. I didn't accumulate wealth, but I didn't have to worry about money. I didn't have to worry about a mortgage or superannuation. So I, it was the thought of going with nothing. And the financial insecurity was big because you don't leave with superannuation. You work for those years, but you don't get superannuation. I think the order was reasonably generous to me, so I was I was happy to, with that. But you, you go thinking, well, where will I live? Was there a, a ceremony to leave? Or once you'd finally made that decision that, yes, you were going to, to do this, how did you sever ties with the order? What I had to do was go and tell the congregational leader at the time that I'd made up my mind that I had to go. And she said to me, why don't you think of exclaustration for a year, which is, I don't know what the equivalent would be, long service leave. And I just am the sort of person that once I made up my mind, and it took me two and a half years to do it, but I did that silently really with a couple of close friends, I knew that I had to go. So I didn't take up exclaustration. So the process was that the congregational leader had to write to the Pope, but I actually wanted to write to the Pope myself. So... Why did you want to do that yourself? Oh, just because it was my decision to leave and I was the one that took the vows. So I wanted to write to say what the reasons why I was leaving. And it was important for me to do that. I wanted to take up my own agency and authority and own the decision and had to look up the email address, vatican.com.org. Or... <laughs> <laughs> and I got a letter back within three months saying from the Vatican's delegate that we agree with your reasons for leaving and you are free to go basically you're not vowed now and it was sort of like a nice letter in a sense it was like you're free to practice in the catholic church if you want to so that was the process the congregation asked if i wanted a farewell but i actually wasn't up for it and i didn't i didn't know if i could do it i just wanted to i said goodbye to the congregation in a letter and i remember writing Dear all, it's with soft tears that I write this to you. And then I just celebrated with a few of my close friends in the order. I've got friends, close sister friends around Australia, you know, so I, I retain them now. They're, they're my really dear friends. I, I think Rosemary said that I've got a bucket load of friends, but I don't think I've got a bucket load of friends. I've got friends that could fit into one bucket, but it's a gold bucket. And where, where did you live after you left, Rebecca? Well, I didn't know where I was going to go, but I was lucky enough, and this is where you have to be lucky enough. A family friend had a unit that was an investment unit, and he said to me, I will offer this unit to you more or less rent-free for a year to get on your feet a bit, and that was just so valuable. I couldn't believe that that was offered, and other than that, I would have gone to live with mum for a while, which was a little unfair for her. She was 81 at the time, (laughs) and so I went to live in a in a unit for a year. And and, and what was that after communal life for so long? What what was it like to be master of your own domain? I remember waking up the first morning after I left and I was on the seventh floor. I'd never been on the seventh floor before. And I woke up and I heard the beautiful magpies warbling and they were gorgeous on my balcony. And I thought, oh, wow, that's beautiful. Uh, I don't know who I am or where I am. But at least I'm not a magpie. I know I'm not a magpie. <laughs> but it was it was just a sense of, oh, just both liberation, but also it was a bit fearful. Here I go. I'm on my own and I've got to make a good go of this now. And it's the right decision. 
I've left behind what I needed to leave behind and I need to move forward now. It's still only really very recent. Is it more than a year or still under a year? Just over a year. I left in January 2019. And has the experience changed in that time, month by month? It has. Yeah, it has. It has. You get, you get, uh, you just get used to having the freedoms, I suppose, that you didn't have in the group. You have access and authority over your own money. You know, you have access and authority over where you go. Someone asked me the other day, do I still pray? And I think, yeah, I do, but I pray very differently. I, this has always been with me. I mean, I love to pray just with nature at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, and I really need this sense of I just sit there and I look at this vastness of the universe or the stars or the insects or the... And I just feel very small in that vastness. I feel very small, but I feel very comforted. It's like the deepest of prayer. It's like I'm in the sense in this transcendence. I don't know what it is called, but it has always been with me. I don't know, I mean, maybe my tradition calls it God, but it's just that sense of, and I've just really relied on that and always have, sense of this smallness in this vast universe. I think I read something the other day that I used to sit there, might have been Tim Winton saying, I think he was quoting someone saying, all living things are holy. And I think I've just had more scope to explore that spirituality having left than I ever did. And I'm really enjoying that. You're now living as a single woman. Rebecca, is dating on your radar? Well, it hasn't been so far. I haven't had had, um, lots of years of experience of it, Sarah, so I come as a novice. I I don't know whether I need to... (laughs) go back into the novitiate. And also the other thing is I, I left in 2019 and I more or less jumped into, as we all have, into this COVID virus separation, social distancing. <laughs> so maybe my chances are better when the pandemic leaves us eventually. But uh, I'm open to whatever happens, Sarah, but at the moment, no, I'm not. But whatever happens, I just feel that it's been the right decision. The more that I get my own life, in order and I'm also capable of living on my own Mm. so I'm not actually desperately seeking someone else to fill that gap. I'll I'll let you know. (laughs) Keep us updated. (laughs) Surely there's a reality TV show in this, Rebecca. You know, if I was in TV I'd be pushing that I'd be pushing that hard. Tell me about the work that you do now as a physio. What kind of patients, what kind of clients you spend a lot of time with who are are also having to refigure their lives? I'm doing a research project or a treatment program with people who have had spinal cord injuries, so people that have become paraplegic and quadriplegic through different things. And we're developing a treatment program to help people navigate questions of meaning and purpose when that happens. Of course, it's a major fracture to people's lives. And so That's been really, really interesting because I'm with a few colleagues that I've worked with for 15 years. So they're colleagues and friends. So we're working to develop. So I really do think through through my own story that questions of meaning and purpose are really central to wellness and health. And sometimes they're missed. Sometimes you get referred to the physio for your tendon, you get referred to the psychologist for your depression. And, but I think 
really excited about developing a treatment program for people looking at these issues specifically and addressing them in terms of the healing and the and the road forward. You've made the point that you're forward focused and you've had these two big ruptures or periods of struggle and, and reinvention in your life. As you're focusing forward now in your 50s, still I hope with many years ahead, I wonder if you've got any sense of, of what shape that kind of reinvention might take in the decades to come. I don't know, Sarah, but I'll always be doing something that's meaningful and, and it'll always be around people. I love being around people. I love working with people and hopefully I'm still able to get in contact with that sense of oneness with something that's much other than me that makes me feel small but makes me feel whole and comforted. Rebecca, I've loved hearing your story. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you so much, Sarah. Pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. You can hear more from Rebecca in Episode 5 of the ABC podcast series, Judith Lucy, Overwhelmed and Dying. Judith is thinking about quitting comedy and she asks Rebecca, how was it leaving her divine calling as a nun in the Catholic Church? Listen to the full series as Judith attempts to feel less overwhelmed about a changing world, getting older and being single, this time potentially forever. Plus the search for purpose and meaning. Judith Lucy, Overwhelmed and Dying, out now on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast provider.